There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Today, it's really exciting. Today we're going to be talking about uh, disability um, and history and how to look at it as a historian. So Alina, explain who we've got with us today. Today we've got Chris Mounsey, who is from the University of Winchester. Chris is a professor of 18th century English literature and has special interests in the histories of sexuality and disabilities. And Wendy Turner is from Augusta University. She has a medieval, she's a medieval historian of law, medicine, science, forensic and disabilities, with an emphasis on medieval mental health, learning disabilities and intelligence. This sounds utterly exciting. Welcome, guys. Hi. Hi. Let's get to some questions. I think um, this is quite exciting. Um, I'm ready to learn a lot, and I'm assuming Alex is as well, as are our listeners listening intently. So for the last two decades, I think it's fair to say that the history community has struggled with the question of definitions. What do we mean when we use the modern terms disability or impairment in a historical setting? Wendy, how have you approached this? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, we have gone back in time and tried to use the actual definitions of the periods that we're looking at. And, um, and I try to figure out what they are defining as disability. And while they don't have an umbrella term like we do for all people that are disabled, you can define individual conditions and, and those terms and even gradations within those terms. And so I try to use those as much as possible, but then I use the modern umbrella terms defining those as modern uh, to explain this is why I'm looking at this group of people or that group of people. Uh, in, um, uh, in the 18th century in England, it's quite interesting because um, the, um, uh, after the dissolution of the monasteries in uh, 1562, uh, there was nobody to look after anybody long term. Uh, so uh, the Queen Elizabeth tried to bring in poor laws. They obviously didn't work. Uh, and so by the, um, by the beginning of the 18th century, uh, people were looking to uh, some kind of uh, charities in order to uh, help people with specific conditions. Uh, and the charities were set up with very specific uh, it, uh, requirements. Um, the very first one uh, is the Dorothy Wilson Trust set up in York in 1718. And uh, it was to, uh, to give six pounds a year to uh, six blind men. The 
question of what blind was uh, is uh, important because one of the first people who applied was a woman who was not blind enough uh, and so she didn't get the six pounds um, uh, and uh, the, uh, also it, uh, as we discover later on in the 18th century there were no charities to help uh, children who had sight impairments. Um, in that sense, you know, because nobody really knows what it is to be blind, and, and I, I certainly um, uh, consider myself to be sight impaired. Uh, some people think I can see very well, other people don't. Um, I, I have in, s created a new terminology called variability, because basically nobody really knows what's going on inside anybody else's head. Uh, all of us can see more or less well, some perhaps not at all if they have no eyes, uh, but then they still have other abilities. And I think it's important to, um, uh, to point out that nobody is blind or uh, perfectly sighted. Uh, nobody can hear perfectly. Uh, and really these are things which, uh, although I'm trying to conceptualize them for a 21st century readership, they have been around since um, since the Dorothy Wilson Trust in 1718. And I'm sure it's the same for Wendy with um, her different phases of um, insanity. No. I don't even want to use the word. No, I wouldn't because insanitas is a particular term and it meant a particular thing in the Middle Ages. And it wasn't an umbrella term the way we use insanity today. But, um, but yes, each and every one of those, uh, you know, furiosis and non compass mentis, some of those terms that we use now in the law or in other places, but they don't mean the same thing in the Middle Ages. Uh, Chris, you're an expert on the boundaries of disability. Um, the question among several groups at the moment is, what do you include, isn't it? Uh, yes, and uh, like I say, it's extremely difficult because in science, as, as far as the science of sight is concerned, you know, we have uh, the Snellen chart that was invented in the 19th century. Uh, in the 18th century, there was no such thing. So uh, as far as, as I say, as far as what a blind person was, uh, is uh, extremely difficult to, uh, to work out. And you know, the, the boundaries in the 18th century really are as difficult as the boundaries nowadays. And you know, that, that in, um, uh, in British law, uh, we have uh, two forms of registration uh, for partial sightedness, which is what I have, and for severe visual impairment. Uh, and there are various uh, sets of words, you know, uh, um, that can somebody uh, predict uh, what is happening in front of them? Uh, in other words, will they fall down a hole uh, in a, a pavement uh, that they walked along? Uh, these are legalistic definitions. Uh, but then you know, um, the, the characters that I'm working on, um, uh, the writers, it's largely writers because I work in English, um, uh, see their sight conditions in completely different ways. Uh, John Maxwell, for instance, who was a blind poet from York, uh, he called it, he always signed himself off John Maxwell being blind. Um, he, see, uh, he sees the garden 
uh, that uh, he's describing in his first poem uh, by smelling it. Uh, and he obviously has some kind of sight because he can, uh, he can, uh, he can get the feel of uh, a lattice uh, with the sun shining through it. Definitions are really, really difficult, which is why I use the term, uh, I get you coined the term variability, because you know, the, the, there is no way of, um, uh, yeah, we, we use terms like blind and deaf and crippled um, uh, in extremely indistinct ways. And I think this is why Wendy's work on the different types of uh, mental impairment in the medieval period is so interesting because they are still trying to separate out different types. Wendy. Yeah, Wendy, how are you trying to define um, what is and is not a disability in the medieval world? So it's a little different for mental health, but it is also uh, very intriguing the direction that physical uh, impairment has gone. Um, and so one of those boundaries is pain. There's a pre-modern pain network that I'm part of that is now trying to look at how pain was one of those factors that finds an edge. You know, you can have temporary pain, but long-term pain or long-term disability then becomes uh, a factor in disabling making someone unable to care for themselves. And so, and that's one of those moments too. Can they care for themselves? And how much help do they need? If it's a tiny bit of help um, to do an everyday task, they might be able to do it themselves and they might need some assistance. But needing assistance means that now you're not able, right? Uh-huh. Uh, you've been disabled, pushed out, from doing um, normal tasks. But we have stories like, um, there's a great story uh, in one of Arena Metzler's works um, about a tailor who has no arms or hands. Uh, he's tailoring with his feet. And, uh, and he's quite able to do tailoring, cutting, sewing. He does all of those tasks. He makes books as well as clothing, and um, and he is quite capable and able-bodied in his society, and is paid well for his work. But can he do all the tasks that an a fully-bodied person can? Um, I I don't know. You know, can he reach the doorknob? I I don't know. And so um, those are really interesting questions. Um, that I don't know that any of us can answer at this point in history. Um, we can look back and make a guess as to what was going on in his day-to-day -day life. Did somebody, did he have an assistant that set him up? And, um, or did somebody, somebody must have made him special equipment or a lower table? But we don't know for sure. We actually don't have those answers. The, the other thing as well is the question of curability, uh, because uh, uh, it, as far as sight in the 18th century is concerned, um, the, the uh, couching operation, which in fact has uh, been known in, uh, certainly in the Mediterranean world since uh, 3000 BC, um, 
comes to England uh, and becomes quite common in England from the from the 1690s. So the question of you know, whether uh, of uh, whether somebody who is blind with cataracts uh, who can now have this operation, so long as they then wear cataract glasses, which are extremely strong spectacles. Um, you know, uh, I, there are numerous uh, reports of um, uh, people who have had this operation and their parishes pay for it um, so that they can go back to work and they back to work and they don't have to live on the parish anymore. They don't have to accept parish payments. And I think as Wendy says, it's all to do with work. If you can do work in whatever form, certainly in the 18th century, you are, you do not consider yourself disabled. I, I love uh, Irina's uh, Taylor uh, you know, because he is not disabled. And you know, uh, that somebody who has had a, a major operation on their eyes, um, I, I have a, a calico worker, I, I can't remember his name, uh, but you know, he writes an advertisement uh, for um, uh, John Taylor, who is um, uh, the the man who carried out the operation. Um, and you know, it must have been a lucrative business because John Taylor taxed 150 London parishes, two guineas a year, and then he would do this cataract operation uh, on poor people for nothing. So he was making himself 300 guineas a year uh, as a, a surgeon. Um, and the, uh, you know, the poor people got uh, eye care free at the point of delivery. So you know, the question of whether they are uh, disabled or not, the calico worker, calico is, is a, a printed form of cloth. So he's printing cloth. He obviously can't do that if his eyes are completely misted over. But once he's had the operation and is wearing the glasses, then he can. Yeah, I should say something about work in the Middle Ages. So mm -hmm. there are people that work in a city, um, you know, and but there aren't that many cities. And so most people are out in, a, in the countryside. Now, if you are in the elite part of society, being unable to fulfill your responsibilities is akin to not being able to work. So it was actually, can I say, easier to be classified as disabled if you were elite because um, most of what they did was keep books um, go off to battle. And if you can't do those things, if you can't ride a horse, if you can't become a knight, if you can't fight, then immediately you're disabled. So even though they might've been able to learn to do certain things with their feet or they were slow, but they could still think, um, if they were learning disabled in any way, they were almost always classified. I would classify them as disabled or um, they would have classified them as as too impaired to do their task, and they would have immediately been given a guardian. Whereas in the peasantry, I think it was easier to make your way in the world if you could help with sowing seeds or with harvest, then you were considered part of the community and you were able to make your way in the world. And so that was just... Uh, an easier lifestyle in some ways. Most peasants didn't read, so having the ability to read wasn't a factor in 
uh, whether or not you could work. And so if you could work alongside someone else and you could still pick vegetables or apples or whatever, you, you were considered able-bodied. And then you could work even if you were mentally slow um, and perhaps unable to uh, stand as a jury member or some other case in which you'd need mental capacity. So things like that did disqualify them for certain tasks in society, but not other tasks. And so they, they were still contributing to their community. The sense of community actually is really interesting because uh, John Max Maxwell, uh, who I mentioned to you before, uh, John Maxwell being blind of York, uh, he uh, receives money from the Dorothy Wilson Trust uh, almost from its inception and for about 20 years. During that time, he starts um, a publishing venture where he's writing short plays, novels, uh, poems, uh, and uh, they're published by uh, a local printer. And um, he, um, uh, he stops uh, taking the money from the Dorothy Wilson Trust and uh, he be, uh, is made a freeman of the city of York, basically because he's making a lot of money. And his venture is really clever because what he does is he asks all the local people in York to pay for the book that he's working on before he's written it. And he's uh, selling uh, up to 800 copies of each book, which made him more than the six, obviously made him more than the six pounds a year that the Dorothy Wilson Trust was giving. Uh, and so you know, and to, to be accepted as a freeman of the city is extraordinary you know, for, because the free, uh, free, freedom of the city was given according to your work. And uh, Maxwell, when you read the records, Maxwell is the only person I found who is not appended a job after his name with his freedom of the city, which is why I'm certain it is Maxwell. Um, uh, because he is part of the community and he's accepted as part of the community. And certainly, you know, bringing history forward, it's something which I think is hugely important that, uh, you know, we accept that um, uh, people have all sorts of different kinds of abilities, variability. And if we bring them into the community in the way uh, uh, Wendy's explained in the medieval period and I'm explaining in the uh, 18th century, I think the situation for um, uh, uh, people with uh, various bodily and mental impairments. But for instance, in, uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, we closed the asylums, I think in the 1970s or the 1980s, but, uh, and uh, started this thing called care in the community. But only 6% of our mentally impaired are in work, which I think is a disgrace. Now, if, if we accept that, you know, the, uh, the, that people with mental impairments can do this, they can do this, they can do this, then uh, you know, that it, it seems to be a much healthier way of, uh, for a, a much healthier society which realizes that people have different uh, capabilities. Yeah, I, I wrote uh, a different type of theory, and that was that, <clears throat> which I called environmental, but... Um, that's been used in a different way. So I don't want to confuse people, but, but basically the closer you are to home, the less disabled you are in the medieval context. And so, and that, and it works for other eras as well. If you're at home and you're comfortable with your environment, 
whether you're mentally disabled or physically disabled, um, you're going to know your way around. You feel comfortable. The people around you are used to seeing you. They're not going to stare. They, they, you're just John or, or, or Wendy or whatever. And, um, the, but the further you get from home, even if it's, uh, the community's disrupted by the King's court, then suddenly strangers are in your town, but that's adding a layer of um, disruption to your local life, right? Then you become more disabled in those people's eyes. And if you travel away from home and go to a new environment, then you become more and more disabled, the more and more in the public eye you are. And so that's an interesting, the closer to home, even your own room is the most safe, but the further you travel from where you are most comfortable, you become more disabled societally, right? Um, because you no longer know your way around and you're not as, as comfortable in your own skin. Uh, and even I think a normal person can realize that the, the person who has stage fright, right? Because now you're more public. You suddenly are not acting like yourself. And so it's, it's an interesting parallel to, to think about dis disability in earlier periods. Yeah, you see, uh, in, the, in the 18th century, that's completely being turned around um, because uh, I have a, an 18th century poet called uh, Priscilla Poynton uh, who um, was born in Litchfield uh, and she was doing a John Maxwell about 20 years after John Maxwell. She was uh, trying to get up a big subscription list for a book of poems. And she traveled all around the towns that surround Birmingham. And she went to the theaters. She stood on stage and recited verse. Uh, she went as far north as Chester because she had some uh, relatives in Chester. But she ended up with a subscription list for one slim book of poetry of 1,600 names. And in consequence, she became financially secure. Uh, she married the man that she loved, and they lived happily ever after. Um, can I ask you, just because we had a show uh, a few weeks ago um Dr. John Wolfe came on to talk about um, the culture of the Victorian freak show and that. What kind of negative responses do you find in your respective periods about people who have disabilities or people who do appear different? That's uh, an obvious question if, in some ways, um, if people acted differently or, uh, you know, couldn't think well, then um, there are certainly a lot of people that were taken advantage of if they can't think clearly. So not only is there fraud on the part of uh, a guardian even, um, but other people around them would squat on their property until they could make a case that they owned it. Um, and so certainly people are taken advantage of and um, you don't see too many cases the way I, so I look at a lot of these cases through the law, and so you don't see that reflected, the, the social stigma reflected too much. But you do see it in will writing later. Um, uh, people will start to say, not just I'm of, um, you know, sound body, and I am going to bequeath this and this and this to these people, but I'm of sound mind. And that's a 
that's not apparent earlier in the Middle Ages. Toward the end, they begin to write, I'm of sound mind when I'm writing this will, and let no one who is of unsound mind ever inherit my property. And so they begin to put these conditions on uh, who can and can't inherit. Um, there are a few places, uh, the church in particular says that no one who is, I'm going to put air quotes here, monstrous can serve as a priest. And so that's defined in the Middle Ages as not being of sound body. Um, but they make exceptions. So if you uh, lose a finger or a leg later in life, then you can serve as a priest if you already had studied to become one. Um, and so long as you can uh, do the mass and remember what it is that you're supposed to do, then you can serve. Um, but there are also special guardians. They, they have a sp special category of people that take care of priests that perhaps in later life develop mental illnesses. And so um, those, even those people are taken care of, but they don't defrock them or take away their title um, even a bishop, in one case, uh, is mentally ill later in life and wanders around the countryside, and they finally find him and everything, and they they take good care of him, but he's um, he just wants to go visit his sister, and they had lost track of him. But this poor man probably has something akin to Alzheimer's today and, and didn't know what he was doing. And uh, and so somebody else needs to fulfill his duties in the church. And they had people that did that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70 percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Certainly, uh, in the Middle Ages, there was a, there was a degree of laughing uh, at uh, people with bodily differences. And Simon Dickey's written uh, a, a nice book about that. Uh, I have come across you, remarkably little of it. You, uh, you it, were talking earlier about the woman who performed poetry and then ended up living happily ever after. Yeah. And certainly there are people that are disabled in the Middle Ages that do performance art and they dance in public or um, there is plenty of artwork showing uh, that they were not court jesters. I, I want to make a distinction between those two. And that's certainly, those are two different categories. Um, 
but there were people that were performative in their disabilities and were laughed at publicly, but they're also using their showmanship to make money and, and to find occupation. Yeah. The, on, the only case in the 18th century that I've uh, come across where um, uh, somebody was not allowed to do their work because of a physical difference um, was the poet Thomas Blacklock, uh, who became blind when he was two months old and had smallpox. And uh, he trained for the Scottish ministry. And uh, he was presented to uh, a congregation in Kirkubri. And um, uh, as he arrived, the congregation laughed at him. And uh, it, uh, it, was, it was appalling. It completely ruined his, well, it didn't ruin his life. It changed his life because he was not accepted as a priest. Uh, in the end, he moved back to Edinburgh, uh, became a successful poet, again, using the uh, subscription list. He, uh, he got the uh, current uh, professor of poetry at Cambridge, Joseph Spence, to create a subscription list of a couple of thousand people for his poetry. Um, he bought a house uh, in Edinburgh and uh, he tutored um, university students. Oh, because, of course, he wasn't allowed to teach in the university because he was blind. So, you know, attitudes uh, in the 18th century, that I, I would love to make them out as being much better than they are. They weren't. Uh, they weren't much better. Uh, and uh, I, I feel extremely sorry for Thomas Blacklock, his description of uh, being uh, laughed at when he was presented to his congregation in Kukubri is one of the low points in, in uh, British history. Can I ask, I mean, you've already touched, uh, touched on this, but we want to know a little bit more what sources you both use to explore the history of different disabilities. So I use... Uh law and administration of law uh, documents, mostly from the National Archive, but also from the Scottish National Archive and, and other places across England and Wales and Scotland. Um, and uh, for the most part, I am looking at the legal definitions of what uh, happened to these individuals, what their lives were like, I'm looking at case studies. Um, more recently, I've looked uh, quite a bit at medical manuals and medical records um, and spent some time looking at definitions in both medieval uh, medicine and in medieval in the church. Um, and <clears throat> uh, it's interesting to see how each of those communities defines things slightly differently. Um, and at the same time, they keep within particular categories of, of mental health. Um, and uh, my most recent work has been on trauma and what that does to an individual's mental state. And, uh, and that too has been mostly from a legal perspective or administration of um, a guardian uh, wards property. Chris? Yeah, I, um, uh, I because I uh, work in literature, uh, I'm very much bound to uh, the um, uh, uh, 18th, uh, 18th century collections online and early English books online, which uh, are searchable databases of all texts published from uh, 1483 to uh, 1800. Uh, I also uh, spend a lot of time looking at newspapers uh, because the thing about um, bodily impairments 
is that they appear both in terms uh, in newspapers in terms of advertisements either uh, for people who can help people who have certain bodily uh, differences or uh, from stories uh, about people with bodily differences um, uh, for instance uh, Michel Foucault uses William Cheseldon's curing of a, a boy who was born blind uh, in 1728 as a metaphor for the, for the Enlightenment, though the Enlightenment was this idea of someone who was blind, who was made to see. Uh, but in fact, I've located um, uh, 27 children who had the same operation uh, that was, uh, that were performed, that these operations were performed by um, uh, um, uh, John Taylor, uh, and they were performed as early as uh, the 1690s by Roger Grant. So you know, t t basically it was an operation that, that um, was, was quite, quite common. Uh, and uh, it's the newspapers that you find all, uh, all of these things. They're, they're not very well um, OCR, the optical character recognition is not very good. Uh, but if you spend a lot of time with them, you can find some absolutely fantastic pieces of information. But of course, that's the wonderful thing about having digitized information. Uh, when I discovered that there were nine extra um, uh, John Maxwell poems that were in the Scottish National Library, and I had to go all the way to Edinburgh to read them, <laughs> which of course is how we always used to do research. But you know, the fact I couldn't get them at my desk, and I had to get my assistant out and travel all the way. You know, I was just like Priscilla Poynton traveling around, uh, around Birmingham <laughs> because I can't travel by myself. Uh, yeah. But you know, the, the, if it's if it's all available on uh, on computer databases, most that's where most of my information comes from. Um, can I ask you both about um, what I think is a broader theme uh, in disability management, and that's uh, hospitalisation? Is that something that evolves in the time periods that you look at? Yes, the Great Incarceration. Uh, the very first blind school in England was in Liverpool, which is where I come from. Uh, and it was set up in um, uh, 1792. It was intended to uh, educate children uh, to become musicians because being a musician was uh, something that blind people could do very easily. Uh, and it did actually train a number of um, uh, parish organists. Um, uh, but unfortunately, uh, the hospitals were set up on a commercial basis. By 1832, every city in the United Kingdom had some kind of blind school. But what they did in those blind schools was uh, they took adult blind people uh, and um, uh, they, the adult blind people made baskets, another thing which blind people can do quite easily. Um, uh, but uh, they actually they come across as being workhouses. It come, they come across as being places of exploitation, and I think it's uh, it is no surprise that the the asylums were disbanded in 1970, and they have a pretty horrendous uh, history. Uh, but that's out of my period. But they start at the very end of the 18th century in 1792. So hospitals in the Middle Ages uh, were. Well, both specialized and unspecialized. So there were hospitals where you could go if you were ill, but many hospitals, uh, the word hospice, are, were really for uh, 
people that needed to have long-term care if they were ill in that way, like they had been injured and they needed uh, to lay in bed for a while and have somebody feed them, or if they were a retiree, they could go there and have a small room. Hospitals were very interesting places. So originally, Bedlam is one of those medieval hospitals that gets set up. Um, They think it's going to be a money-making scheme for um, the St. Bethlehem uh, hospitalers over, you know, in uh, the Middle East, but um, that never occurs. Um, It's one of the few places that did allow uh, mental health patients to come, but in the whole of the Middle Ages, Bedlam only has six mentally ill patients. And so lots of people point to Bedlam as, as if it's a medieval idea, and it's not. Um, it's actually post-1500 that it begins to take off, and it's actually post-Henry VIII when he, that's the last hospital he approves to come back into the fold um, once he disbands all of the monasteries and, and other hospitals, um, those monastic hospitals all are dissolved and each one has to then apply to be a civil hospital. And the last one that he signs in is Bedlam for the care of the mentally ill. So it's post Henry VIII that it really takes off as a mental health institution and even then it has very few patients but all the way up until then there are six total so it's usually one at a time that is there and and otherwise uh this so-called bedlam hospital um had other types of patients that were there people that just needed long-term care or um as i said were aging Sometimes, uh, you know, if they just needed a doctor, the doctors made house calls. So um, if you had somebody that was ill or injured or they lost their leg, they might see a surgeon and then maybe an apothecary to get some medicine to help with the pain for a while. But then they were cared for at home. Um, And so you don't see a lot of the disabled in hospital situations. there are uh, leprosarium, but uh, the Lazar houses um, are a whole, again, that's a specialized thing. And, um, and the ones that I know best, if you want to ask about those, are the ones uh, around London. Uh, originally, there's four, and then they add a few more, and I think there's six total. Um, mental health care in the 18th century uh, um, is centred on the Bethlehem Hospital um, in Moorfields. Uh, in fact, what, what's quite extraordinary about it uh, is that they built a, a very wonderful formal garden behind it. Uh, so uh, it became a place to go and take exercise. And of course, it's well known that people would uh, pay, I think it was uh, two shillings and sixpence, to go in and see the mad yeah, people. Right doing their, their, uh, their weird dances and things. But in fact, uh, at the same time, uh, that well, of course, the Beth- Bethlehem Hospital had been running since 1500. Uh, but in the 1750s, um, uh, St. Luke's Hospital uh, was uh, set up by William Batty. 
who is the only doctor, actually, oh, now forget about that one, I've forgotten what I was going to say about him, but uh, to have, a, have a, a mad doctor who was called Batty was always quite fun. Uh, but he, he became a multimillionaire running a private prison that if you wanted to get rid of an annoying relative, you, uh, he would look after them for a guinea a week in St. Luke's Hospital. And the trade in madness, as uh, William Parry Jones calls it, becomes quite disgraceful uh, in the 18th century because a lot of money could be made out of it. You know, uh, uh, um, a, rich, uh, a poor men would marry rich wives and then say that they were mad and then live off the income. This happened all the time. Um, and uh, so the, the, the privatization of um, uh, the care of uh, people with mental incapacities or whatever was uh, really notorious and very unpleasant. Before we finish, um, I just want to ask a question. Um, I guess this is constantly evolving, but um, what's it like having to factor in being careful about applying modern, uh, maybe more progressive attitudes towards sensitive things like mental health? And and putting them in a historical setting to try and interpret. Um, how do you manage that? So I just finished an article talking directly to that question um, about parallel diagnosis. So you try very hard to both honor what was happening in the past and look at what those people were saying and defining as mental health issues and at the same time, act and react in a parallel fashion, saying, of course, that wouldn't be acceptable today. Or even though the word idiota, which becomes our word idiot, is, uh, would be disgraceful to use now, it was not in the past and it was actually a clinical diagnosis. So you need to be cautious and at the same time, honor where things came from um, and, and use the terminology that they used. I usually leave it in Latin rather than anglicizing it or moving it into modern English because the modern term has a different connotation. Uh -huh. and, um, and so I try really hard to use both acknowledging that people today are going to have questions. So what did that mental health case look like? Or what was that? Um, condition, what would that be? And I usually say it's akin to, it's akin to melancholia, it's akin to Alzheimer's, but it's an, we don't know that it's the same. Mm. And so I'm very cautious. And at the same time, uh, if you didn't give any kind of definition, we wouldn't have a conversation, would we? No. Because, yeah. I, I, if you leave it all in the past. One of my bugbears when I'm reading history books is people um, retrospectively diagnosing people that have been dead for 200 years like oh well it's possible now that they might have had syphilis or it could have been a brain tumor or it could have been this I did that kind of speculation drives me mad yeah it's it's just crazy retro diagnosis is extremely foolish uh, and uh, it also means though that and I completely agree with Wendy uh, because uh, in the 18th century, people with mental impairment are usually called idiots. They're not called idiota. Yeah. Uh, but then one just has to say in one's first footnote, this is the terminology that was used. And if I don't use the terminology, I'm not honoring the 18th century. But no, I will never retro-diagnose anybody. 
um, that, uh, that if you use the language of the time, you can avoid retrodiagnosis. Uh, so they describe the symptoms rather than say, uh, this was a cataract. Um, because um, you know, terminologies that we use nowadays, like glaucoma, um, were thought of, uh, thought of as being the same illness as cataract. Right. And uh, so I think you can, to some degree, at least give modern readers something to hang on. Yeah. So that they're not sitting there scratching their head going, I don't understand what this, what was wrong here. So it's okay in my mind to say, okay, so some parallel ideas might be this or this or this. Um, for example, senility or Alzheimer's or, you know, we might think in those terms, but they are using this particular word to mean the, somebody with these conditions. And then there'll be, you know, a list of conditions. And so then you can go on you can move forward from there to talk in their language about their patient or their relative or whatever. But in using their terms, now people having something to hang on to that's modern. But um, yes, you have to be very cautious as you do that. But I think um, as I said, parallel, I, I like to think of that term of parallel diagnosing. We're not back diagnosing or retro diagnosing, but we're using parallel terminology so that we have some way of a language between the two worlds because they're so separated. Thank you guys so much for coming on to give us um, an overview of what it's like trying to um, to be a historian looking at issues of disability um, and mental health and illness. Um, it's been absolutely fascinating. Well, thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Join us a bit later on down the pub. We will be talking all about history's most epic death scenes. Uh, there's a couple of notable and iconic ones, but mostly uh, because it's us, we went for the insane and the stupid and had a right laugh, uh, cackling at people's misfortune again, which is what we do best. So join us for that. Join us tomorrow when we will be talking to cast and crew of Sharp. This is a really interesting chat because I'd never, we don't ever consider, we have the cast of these things on, um, but there's such a small fraction of the entire team that makes up bringing history back to life on these dramas. So we've talked to people from different departments um, and all over the crew, really, to get a real sense of how they bring the 19th century back to life to such good effect. And then on Sunday, we will be talking to Aperba Chatterjee about empire and the arts we'll be talking about how indian culture was absorbed into britain in the 18th and early 19th century before cameras before film crews uh, and talking about the impression of india that was generated and why and how really um cultures began to cross over to an extent that alina and i certainly had no comprehension before we had this chat it's really interesting don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. 
It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.